Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we've been looking at these stories, I've been calling the series Scandals of Scripture because we're looking at these Bible characters and their unsavory side and the scandalous nature of what many of these folks have been involved in. And yet as we look at them, we learn and we can see that they have weaknesses, but I've been encouraging and inviting all of us to think about our own weaknesses in light of what we learn from Scripture, and look for lessons that will help us do better in our Christian life, especially when we're dealing with our own weaknesses. So we started back at the beginning of July talking about the woman at the well that Jesus met. Then we looked at Hagar and Sarah and Abraham and Noah. Reverend Venable looked at a cast of characters last week. Today we consider Rahab. You may have never heard a sermon about Rahab. She's not the most esteemed character in the Scripture. You may not even have known her story unless you have done Bible study or read through Joshua. And yet she is an important character. But perhaps we've never heard about her because we're told right off that she is a prostitute. Nonetheless... Rahab is obviously a key actor in this story, and this story is a part of the central storyline of the whole Hebrew Scriptures in terms of how God is pulling these people together, calling them to be a nation, shaping them into a people that they might be a blessing to the entire world. We picked up the story in Joshua today right after Moses has died. Now, you'll remember Moses has been a towering figure in this relationship that's developing between the Hebrew people and their God, Yahweh. Moses is the one, you remember, who spoke. He stuttered, so he didn't want to speak. But God called him to speak to the Pharaoh, to go down to Egypt where the Israelites were enslaved and say, set my people free. And so even though he was reluctant, Moses responded to this call from God and went and freed the people, led them out of bondage. Then you'll remember they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and Moses is their leader. And when they're complaining, he encourages them. When they need food and water, he provides it because God shows him how to do so. He is the one that brings them the Ten Commandments so that they understand how God wants them to live together as a people how they should live together as the community or the people of God. 
But now they're ready to enter the land that has been promised to them, that they've been waiting for for all these years. And Moses dies. Joshua has been the faithful assistant to Moses through this journey and now ascends to that top leadership position. Joshua is ready. He's ready to lead the people into the promised land. He knows that it's time to go. And yet just before he is ready, he decides he needs some fresh intelligence on what's going on into the land where they're headed. So he sends two spies to go look around and see what they can learn and then come back and report to him. So they go in to this new land. And the first place they go is to Rahab's house. Now we're told she's a prostitute. I'm wondering if they forgot their mission. (laughs) All of a sudden they're on a detour it seems. Now maybe they thought that was a good place to hide or to blend in or to learn some local gossip. Maybe they even felt like God was leading them to go to that place. I don't know why they went to Rahab's house the first night in Jericho, but the story says that's where they went. They go to Rahab's house for whatever reasons and spend the night. But apparently they're not very good spies because as soon as they get there almost, the very next sentence tells us that people who live there know that they have come into their country and they know why they're there. They're here to spy on us. The word gets to the king. He sends an envoy back to Rahab to say, we need these fellows. We're going to take them into custody. But Rahab protects them. She lies on their behalf. She hides them. She sends sends the king's envoy on a wild goose chase looking for them in a place they are not. She makes a commitment to them and asks them that when they come with their people into her land, To protect her and her family. It's hard for me to believe that God uses a person who's involved in an illicit profession, who lies, deceives, betrays her own people. You could say commits treason, even. And yet, that's the story is that God is using her for divine purposes. That God is using her to do good in the world. And she's not only lauded here in this part of Scripture as a heroine, but also when the Christian Scriptures begin to be written, you find that she's listed there in the genealogy of Jesus and held up as a heroine of faith in both the book of Hebrews and the book of James. So I ask the question in the title of the sermon, does God use sinners for good? Does God use sinners for good? The answer must be yes. If Rahab is any example, and I think she is, then the answer must be yes, that God is working in ways that we do not always understand And is often using sinners for good. 
But I want us to also think about how that might apply to us. What practical lessons might we learn that would help us in our own walk of faith? I think there's two significant things here for us to consider. The first is, if God uses sinners, then God can use you and me. I don't think it's too big a jump to go from God is using a sinner in this story to God wants to use all of us, any one of us, to help achieve divine purposes in the world. That God wants to work through us to do good in the world. Think about that. God wants to use you to achieve divine purposes in the world. Let that sink in for a minute. Can you believe that God wants to use you for some divine purpose to bring more goodness into the world? Would it change the way you conduct your daily life if you truly internalized and believed that God was at work in your life to achieve divine purposes. There was a little story that went around the internet. It's been out there for several years, but it applies to our topic today. It reads like this. The next time you feel like God cannot use you, just remember Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old, Isaac was a daydreamer, Jacob was a liar, Leah was ugly, Joseph was abused, Moses stuttered, Gideon was afraid, Samson was a womanizer, Rahab was a prostitute, Jeremiah was too young, Elijah was suicidal, Isaiah preached naked, Jonah ran from God, Naomi was a widow, Job went bankrupt, Martha worried all the time. The Samaritan woman was a multiple divorcee. Zacchaeus was really short. <laughs> Peter was a betrayer. The disciples fell asleep on the job. Paul had a recurring physical ailment. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus, Lazarus was dead. Now no more excuses. Can you hear it? God wants to use you because God uses sinners for good in the world. Nelson Mandela was born across the ocean and across a vast continent from us. And yet I would imagine we all know his name. He became very well known around the world during his lifetime, particularly after 1993, when he received the Nobel Peace Prize. But did you know, do you remember, Nelson Mandela served nearly 30 years in prison in his country of South Africa for opposing the racist system of apartheid? 30 years. But then his country began to change. And he was released from prison. And they decided to have more open and free and democratic elections in that country. And Nelson Mandela was elected president and served 
faithfully from 1994 through 1999. It is a great story of courage and perseverance. On one occasion, he is quoted as saying these things. Our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our greatest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in all of us. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. God is at work within you and around you and wants to use you to do good and to fulfill divine purposes in the world. There's a second practical lesson here, though, for us to think about as well. I think we have a reminder in this scandalous story about Rahab to not be too quick to judge, to say with such certainty that we know where and through whom God is working. I mean, if someone asks you where... Could I go look to see where God was at work? Would your first thought be, I think I'll go to the part of town where I think I can find a prostitute who lies and betrays and deceives, and I think right there we'll see where God is at work. Probably wouldn't have been my first guess or my best recommendation. And yet that's the story. And it reminds us not to be too quick to judge that we understand all of what God is doing and how God is working and where God is alive and at work. St. Paul writes about walking with the Spirit or living with the Spirit in Galatians. He lists these nine fruits of the Spirit. One of the nine he lists as signs or symbols of one who's walking in the Spirit is humility. Humility. I wouldn't say Rahab would be my first choice as an example of where God is working. So I should be humble whenever I'm getting ready to say where you can see God at work or how God is working. Did you read back in June the story that was in the Tulsa world about NASA sending this probe into outer space, this Kepler telescope? The purpose of the mission was to see if this telescope could send back information where American scientists could identify planets that were Earth-like. 
That is, that they were about the same size as our planet, and the temperature was about the same as ours. The scientists believing that that would be the best place that we might find life. And so they sent this telescope out to see if there were any planets like that. How many would you guess they have found? Would you guess one, two maybe, ten? The probe's been out there eight years now. In the first four years, it identified 49 planets like that. In the next four years, the number jumped to 219 planets that are of the right size and the right temperature for life to exist. One of the astronomers said, this is making it clear to us that life in a habitable zone is not rare for planets. In fact, even though the probe has been out there for eight years, it's only explored one quarter of one percent of our galaxy that contains some 200 billion stars. I am humbled when I see the vastness of God's creation. And it is a reminder for all of us not to be too quick to say we know when and where God is at work and this is the place and this is the only place. I don't know if you ever do this, but I occasionally flip through my cable channels looking for something to watch on TV. And occasionally when I'm doing so, I'll stop on the religious station and see what whomever's on has to say. I don't do that all the time, but occasionally. So the other day, I was surfing through the channels and stopped. There were two fellas there talking, and what I heard one of them saying was this might be the most important book ever written in western civilization this might be the most important book you could ever read and i know i'm on the religious station so i'm thinking it's about the bible and it was in a sense but it was not the bible itself it was one of the books two of those guys had written <laughs> they said this is the book and what one of them had done, he was a fundamentalist preacher, has gone to the Scripture and pulled out certain prophecies and written a new book saying that he is sure that these certain things that are happening in world events today, particularly in the Middle East, are exactly predicted in the Bible. And therefore, because he's so certain about this, he can tell you when the end of the world is coming. He is sure he knows what God is doing and where God is acting and really whose side God is on. Happens to be his side, our side. He thinks our government has done everything right in the Middle East according to God's ordaining of that. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that he can say, that God is doing this and this and this, and that means that and that and that. And therefore, these are the last days. I think maybe he's failed the humility test. I think maybe he believes he's got all of God right in these pages he has written. Rather than seeing that perhaps God 
is at work in ways that we cannot comprehend. And that we should be humble whenever we're trying to describe God. Because so often what happens in our description, we limit God to something that we can handle. Perhaps as you await your turn to receive the elements of Holy Communion, it would be helpful to remember what St. Paul writes to the early Christians at Rome. I've put just a couple of phrases in your outline there on your bulletin. Paul writes this, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Amen.